Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. I invite you this morning, let's go in our Bibles together. We're going to the book in the Old Testament, Nehemiah. We will be in chapter 2 today in our study, Nehemiah chapter 2. The title of the message today is one word, providence. Providence. The providence of God is a reality that has often been overlooked and even taken for granted in the course of human history. The scriptures teach that God is sovereign and also that God is provident. Now, the terms are very similar, but I want to explain. I really want to kind of cut hairs here, splice these two, so that we see the difference between God's sovereignty and God's providence. In God's sovereignty, what do we mean by sovereignty? That God is entirely free to do whatever he wants to do. That's what sovereign means. It means you don't ask permission from anyone. There's no one over and above you because you are it. So if you're a king, a king doesn't ask permission. They may ask counsel, but they do not ask permission because they're the king. If you're the king over all kings, the eternal king, there's no one over you. So that's the term sovereign that God is able. The word providence and the term providence is similar, yet it's different. Providence is, it's tucked in the word provide, that's in the word, it's the root word there. But that God has a constant care and rule over all his creation. So he's sovereign, but his sovereign provision is going somewhere. It's his good hand at work, and this is where we see the goodness of God, that he guides, he provides, and he accomplishes his purposes, loved ones, in and through all things. Providence. It's summed up well in our New City Catechism, the second question, Question number two, what is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power, perfection, goodness, and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. He's sovereign and he is provident. James chapter one, the half-brother of Jesus Inspired by the Spirit, he wrote, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. There's providence. He's the giver. Everything good in life is from God. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now here's where we get sovereignty of his own will. Like if you ask the question, well, how did all this happen? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Why? Here's where his sovereignty and providence is going, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his, of his creatures. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The goodness of God is going somewhere. He's doing something. And I came across this book. I downloaded it on, on Audible. This is a, a Puritan paperback by Thomas Watson. And this little book is a complete arsenal for going through trials. So if you never go through trials or not worried about any suffering, never mind. This is for others around you. But this is a complete arsenal, all things for good. And he just dissects Romans chapter 8, 28. He just takes it apart and squeezes every possible drop out of, good, out of it as goodness for the people of God when encountering trials. How do we draw near to God instead of by the lie and run from God? Blame God accuse God, start to doubt God. Think about Psalm 23. 
as provision. The Lord is my what? Shepherd. And when the Lord is your shepherd, I shall not. I, 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 there's nothing good that he hasn't provided. Or, and sometimes we, it doesn't mean we have everything we ever wanted, but he provides exactly what we need. And what we just sang is at the end of Psalm 23, we turn around as we follow the good shepherd and what is pursuing us, goodness and mercy are chasing me. That's what happens when you follow the good shepherd. And what does the thief come to do is to steal, to kill and destroy. Take your eyes off the shepherd. Distractions are everywhere. He's working all things together for good. Now, 500 years before Jesus would walk this earth, if you were to get the drone footage over Jerusalem, not sure how you would do that 500 years before Jesus, but it was messed up. The city was in ruins. And this is the place we're waiting on God's promises to be fulfilled. It doesn't look right. It doesn't look fitting for a king to come. And if this situation is going to be rectified and changed, God's going to have to do it. And how would God do this? Through a man like Nehemiah who would fix his eyes on the Lord. Not fix his eyes on the situation, but he would be moved by the situation. So when he heard the news in chapter 1, the city's in ruins, the gates are burned with fire, it's, it's horrible. The people are destitute there. Someone needs to do something he responded with brokenness and it catapulted him into prayer. Well, in chapter two, as we turn the page, it's go time. We've done all the warm-ups, we've done all the training, we've gone through all the drills. Now it's go time. Now it's on. Something is about to happen that Nehemiah is able to recognize God's hand is at work. He's provident. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it? And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, uh, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Oh, this is an amazing story, and I couldn't wait for Sunday to get here. I, I just love what we see unfold in this. God's good hand rules over. That's our simple proposition out of this. What are we going to see now? I want you to know my aim behind this this morning. I believe my aim is the same as Thomas Watson's in writing that. It's really my aim, my heart for every message. We're, we're really talking theology this morning, okay? Sometimes people will say, oh, I'm really not a theologian. It's simply a study of God, okay? So we, we all are theologians. It just depends on what is that object. For some people's theology, it's sports, it's work, it's career, it's money, it's fame. 
That's what they study. We study the God who created and sustains everything, everyone and everything. So as we think about theology this morning, what is my aim? What is my desire? I want to fill your arsenal with wonder that leads you to worship. Why? Because trials have come in your life. You may be in the season of trials right now. I know some watching online are. Or it's coming. This season is coming. And what's going to happen when we hit those trials It matters on your view of God. Do you view him to be sovereign? Do you view him to be provident? Because if you trust in the Lord Jesus, then you can sing that old hymn, you've given me grace to trust him, now I need more grace to trust him more. And that's where the sweetness is found, of trusting the Lord Jesus. As we grow in a greater knowledge and understanding, then our confidence in the goodness of God grows, and we need that when we get the phone call that we didn't want to have. And we know it, loved ones, that phone call comes, and that news comes, but it can never outshine the greatest news of God's providence that he's given us Jesus, and there's no phone call that will ever come and say, he's gone. No, no, no. He's given me life beyond the grave. Now I need that perspective when I go through trials and suffering this side of the grave. So God's good hand rules over, number one, our sadness. We've got some scenes here. Really, there's five words that describe what Nehemiah is journeying through. And if you, at the end of this message, look, you will probably see, well, I've I've been through this. I've experienced this. Loved ones, God is aware of our sorrow. He is aware of our suffering. So from Nehemiah's example, we must learn to be patient in our prayers. And be patient in our prayers to seek and wait on the Lord. The opening verses there in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence This is four months later. From Nehemiah 1 to Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah has been praying and seeking the face of the Lord. And it seems like nothing's happening. It seems like, where are we going with this? But God is doing a work in Nehemiah in that entire time. The weeping prophet. Lamentations 3, the great old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, comes out of this. This nugget here is in the middle of devastation. God's judgment on his people. And the weeping prophet pours forth this truth, this this bedrock, this anchor. It's an invitation to come put your trust in the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. There's that hesed, that Hebrew word, this, this loving kindness undeserved, unmerited. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord but we could just stop and just meditate on that, couldn't we? How many of us, that's our verse. Yeah, that's me. I I just know the goodness of waiting, wait a second, quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That's what Nehemiah was learning. He was learning to wait on the Lord. Nehemiah, he didn't didn't jump right into, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to solve this like Moses did, trying to deliver the people out of Egypt his way. Isaiah 25, verse 9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There's no misplaced trust there. Isaiah 40, 31, but they, those who wait on the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They won't pass out. They won't grow weary. Why? Because they're waiting on 
the Lord. So be patient in our prayers. Be patient. As a church, we've been patiently waiting on God's sovereign hand, whether it be building, whether it be anything that we do. All of our plans, they're just plans. If anything is accomplished, the Lord must do it. And then be faithful in our ministry. We have to prioritize like Nehemiah did, our God-given responsibilities, and be steadfast in our responsibilities as stewards who will give account. It will come on the screen. Be faithful in our ministry. Nehemiah is just not in the outer room praying, and the king says, "Uh, don't I have a guy for this? Where is he at? Oh, he's praying. No, he is praying, but he also has a responsibility, and he's faithful in fulfilling that responsibility. The text doesn't explain why there's a separation. Four months go by. Perhaps the king was in another winter palace, and now he's made his way, and Nehemiah is reconnected to him. Nehemiah, like Joseph, he was a faithful steward. He was a worshiper of the God of heaven. And what does this do? When you worship the God of heaven, then you and I become the best possible employee wherever we are employed. Or at least we should if we have our perspective right. See, because Nehemiah worshiped the God of heaven, then he had the right perspective serving King Artaxerxes. And he was faithful. He was fulfilling his obligation. He just didn't quit and hop on a donkey and make his way to Jerusalem, a one-man band. I'm going to fix the problem. He couldn't fix the problem. This was not a one-man, I can do it myself. It wasn't going to happen. If we move forward in a building program, it's not going to be one person. It's going to be the people of God moved by the Spirit of God, seeing what he will accomplish through us and trusting on him to supply. Nehemiah's been praying, he's been waiting. We don't have ownership in the body of Christ, but we sure do have stewardship. Members, you're a steward. This is, this is where you belong, this is a ministry. So the king will come and take account of his servants. Are you like Nehemiah, actively serving? Or, ah, uh, I was serving. You know, when it works out in my schedule, then I'll put God in. Do do we hear those words and how blasphemous that is? When I get around to making time for the one who's provided my whole life, Nehemiah is faithful. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 4 too, moreover, it is suggested of stewards that they try and be faithful. Is that what it says? (laughs) No, 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 no. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found. What? Jesus is returning. Will we be found faithful? So, yes, the word of God steps on our toes. It works on our hearts and our priorities. But that's what it's intended to do. Because the day is coming and Christ will return. And then there's no, let me get back to that. Let me go and, can I have a mulligan? No. We have one life. And only what's done for and through Christ will last, loved ones. So let's learn from Nehemiah to be faithful in our ministry. You understand the turmoil that was going on inside of him? And yet he was faithful. But then... The next thing, let her see here, be authentic in our relationships. Be authentic. There is absolutely no benefit to us being fake, overly pious, super saved when we're going through trials. When it seems like all hell is breaking loose in our lives, and we're like, oh, bless the Lord, it's all good. Hey, you know, how you doing? I'll I'll be fine, praise the Lord. Mm, Okay, what do I do with that? I'm not sure what what do we, what happened? 
I really care about you. Well, the Bible always says, and scripture, and scripture, and scripture, and scripture. But listen, I'm, I'm, I want to know, how are you doing? So gift from Nehemiah, when he comes into the presence of the king, he's not coming into the presence of the king. Bless the Lord, king. It's all fine. I'm the Lord is good, king. He comes in and his face is sad. That word keeps reappearing four times in these verses. Sad. Sadness. There's evil here. There's something wrong here. We need to be genuine before the Lord. There's absolutely, what is the point in us trying to be hypocrites before God? Like, seriously, we can fool people sometimes, but to really try and fool God, what are we doing anyway? He's not confined to a building. He sees all, he knows all, and on one hand that is condemning of us because we just read this morning we're supposed to perfectly and perpetually obey the entire law of God I stand guilty but I have a savior and he did what I can't do in my place for me was crucified buried and rose again and he gives me the grace and the life and the mercy that I need and so now I want to obey him I want to please him. I want to be genuine before the Lord and humble myself before him. So I need to be genuine before God, and that's the place then we can be transparent with others. There's no hollow facade. There's no paint over black mold. Just paint it. Sell it. Sign, nope, no problem in the house that we know of. Whew. Still there. And it's going to do damage. Nehemiah has a broken heart, and it shows on his face. He's there, he's fulfilling his ministry, but he's able to be honest. And the king, he says, I was never sad in his presence. I mean, seriously, can that be said of you, of me, in our lives, in our jobs? Man, they, they just never had a bad day. They just always showed up. Morning, how you doing? Good to see you. There are people like this. They just, they're always even, always level. They're just not up one day, down the next, and you're like, well, you know, what's going on? Step in. How's the supervisor today? How's the manager? A good day? Bad day? What happened? Nehemiah is just level. He's just got that winsomeness about him, that presence about him until this day. And the king looks over and he's looking at Nehemiah going, hmm, why is Nehemiah's face sad? What's going on, Nehemiah? You've never been sad before. What are you holding from me? What are you withholding from me? I want to know what's happening here. Loved ones, the gospel enables us, it invites us, and it demands of us honesty. See, the gospel then does, it's good for us, it's good news for us that I can't be perfect. I'm not perfect, I can't be perfect, but I have a perfect Savior in my place. That gives life and oxygen in our relationships. It lets us live and not be condemning everybody. They did this and they did that. Do you keep all of your own plans and desires and demands? Romans 2 says, no. So then why are you putting yourself in a place of judgment over other people? That's not gospel. The gospel is Jesus was condemned for me, so he's not interested in condemning others. There's an invitation. Come, come and find life. We can be honest. He's sad in the king's presence, and God's good hand rules over our sadness. Have you been in the season of sadness? Are you in a season of sadness? Can you see from the word of God that it, you don't have to put on a pretend face? You don't have to come in and walk in, and it's all fine, and it's all good. If it's not, if there's something that someone should be praying with you about and walking through with you, that's what we're here for. 
God is also provident over our fear. His good hand rules over our fear. The Lord knows all of our anxieties. He knows all of our concerns. Anyone here struggle with fear, with anxiety? Your mind is running marathons nonstop of all the things that should be done, haven't been done, could be doing, all right? Then just tell your mind to stop. Thanks, Pastor. That's great. Now let's look at let's look at Nehemiah. Let's learn from him. He said, "Then I was very much afraid." Notice how he doesn't have to put on a. And then I was bold because I've been praying for four months. Everyone, I hope you can be like me, but you probably can't. Losers. That's not what Nehemiah is doing. He's just leveling. The king called me out. And I was very much afraid. I wasn't just afraid. I was very much afraid. This is intense fear. We really can see there might be three aspects that the fear could be dealing with. Number one, fear of death. Well, he could have been afraid of dying. To be sad in a king's presence, the Persian kings in their court, unacceptable. You can't come in. I was reading in, in, in the preparation, in the, in the presence of a Persian king, if somebody's speaking to a Persian king, you've got to cover your mouth because your breath, now I know my wife would probably agree, with this, your breath might defile the king. Like, you know, they're not going to just slip you a mint like our kind friends and spouses do every now and then. They're going to say, cover your mouth because you're in the king's presence and we don't want your breath defiling him. That's pretty intense. <laughs> Esther knew the reality of going against the king in the simplest of customs. She didn't say when her uncle said, you, you need to go in and you need to talk to the king about this. He is your husband after all. You're the queen. She didn't say, that's right. I am the queen. And I will go talk to him right now. You listen here. She said, he hasn't asked for me to come in. Esther chapter 4, verse 16. So she says, here's what you need to do. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. But here's the deal. It's against the law. And if I perish... I'll perish. She just didn't run in there. She recognized God's provident hand is going to have to rule or I'm just going to die and then what help am I? There's a fear of death here. But there's also a potential here of a fear of failure. I've been praying for all these months. The king just asked me what's wrong. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I stumble and fall on my face, trip over my tongue in the presence of the king and I mess it up? And he says, no. Well, this is a problem. I'm sure no one ever has that fear. Well, I would share the gospel with them, but what if I say the wrong thing? What if they ask me a question and I don't oh, have the answer? Welcome to the club. Are you God? It's appropriate to say, I'm not sure, but let me write that down and let me go hunt, hunt that dog. Let me go find the answer to that question and I'll get back to you. That's a humble posture. Sometimes, if we're afraid of failure, we say, well, let somebody else do it. Let, let somebody else do it because what will people think of me if, if I fall flat on my face? If it doesn't turn out, you know, to my expectations. And here's what happens when we do that, loved ones. We miss out on God working through you specifically to accomplish his good will. Now, think about this. Nehemiah knew what God did in Esther's life. 
most likely Esther would been in relation, Artaxerxes, Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus' wife, Queen Esther, son, Artaxerxes, were in the Persian palace. So Nehemiah had a woman going before him that paved the way and showed some wisdom in how to interact in this palace. And there could be some kindness, and you hear that little note tucked in, the queen was beside him. She was probably influenced by Esther. I'm not sure of all the relations because kings had more than one wife. But her, her effect is still reverberating in the palace. The people of God are still on the balance here, just like they were in Esther's day. Remember what Mordecai said to Esther? Esther 4, verse 12, and they told Mordecai what Esther said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you, Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Do you hear Mordecai's confidence in the sovereign providence of God right there? He knows the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David. And so Mordecai knows God's will will be done. Here's the question, Esther. Are you going to be part of this? But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, do you hear what Mordecai just did? He posed a question to Esther. Why are you here right now, Esther? Why are you in this position given to you? Did you get that position for yourself, Esther? Did you campaign and did you win that? Or did God give you that position? Listen, Esther, can you not see the providence of God? And what does she do? Okay, fine, I'll get right in there. No, no, no. Okay, I'll lay my life on the line, but first let's fast and pray. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, married all over the scriptures. What about the fear of man? God's good hand rules over this fear. Now, he could have been paralyzed in fear. What's wrong, Nehemiah? Um, <clears throat> nothing. Really? Now he's got it. Now he's lied in the presence of the king if he says that. Oh, great. My chief of staff is a lying man. Hmm. I didn't take him for a liar. Now I've got another problem. So this is go time. This is, this is, this is it. Here's the microphone, Nehemiah. What do you got to say? Ah, oh, he's ready. Now, let's, let's complicate this a little bit. Turn a few pages back to Ezra. Ezra chapter 4, as if there's not enough stress in this situation. In Ezra chapter 4, we get a little more of the background to why Nehemiah is experiencing very much fear, okay? Artaxerxes is the one saying, what's, what's wrong, Nehemiah? What's going on, Nehemiah? Why are you sad? You've never been sad in my presence, Nehemiah. What? You're not sick. What's going on, Nehemiah? Uh, Ezra chapter 4, verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes, and a lot of other names, they wrote a letter to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated, verse 8. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper, there you go, another name for your kids if you've got a kid coming right there, Osnapper, deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. 
To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greetings. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that the search may be made in the books of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city, Jerusalem, was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. You catch what's going on? They're rebuilding Jerusalem, and if they rebuild Jerusalem, they will rebel against you, almighty king, and we don't want you to suffer dishonor. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates that live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond Babylon, beyond the river, and uh, greeting. And now, the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree. And a search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute and custom and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the herd of the king? So the letter was sent. And guess what happened to the work? A screeching halt. All right, back to Nehemiah. What's wrong, Nehemiah? All right, now this is where many would want to say, I'll tell you what's wrong. You want to know what's wrong? You're what's wrong, king. You stopped the building of the city. You have left my home city in ruins, and I've been serving you, and I've been faithful to you, and you don't care about me. And you don't care about my people. That's not how Nehemiah responds. There was another prophet that was sent to a king, and that was the answer. Remember David and Nathan after David's sin? And Nathan the prophet goes to David and says, I got a story for you. What? David responds, who in my kingdom would go steal a little lamb from poor people? He's going to die. And you remember the prophet, Nathan? You're the man, David. I'm talking about you. And David was cut to the heart. I've sinned against you, O Lord. That's where repentance always begins, Psalm 51. It's getting a right view of God. That's our only hope to have horizontal peace in our relationships. How many of us struggle? Think about this now. We struggle in knowing how to talk with people that we love and be honest and address the situation because what if, what if they misunderstand? What if they think that I don't care about them? What if I don't have all the answers? What if I don't say it the right way? Welcome to Nehemiah. And God's good hand rules over our sadness, loved ones, rules over our fear, and thirdly, rules over our needs. God is perfectly aware of exactly what we need long before we are. You believe that? He knows what you need this afternoon and tomorrow. He knows what you need way better than we do. He knows I said to the king, verse 3, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lie in ruin, lie in ruin, lies in ruins? 
and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Okay, what are we learning from Nehemiah here? In the middle of his great need, he gives honor. You see that? Nehemiah, what's wrong? What's the problem, Nehemiah? Why is your face sad? Let the king live forever. Can I just say this? We all do. We all do live forever, either in heaven or in hell, and it's all based on your relationship to Jesus Christ. But this is a saying that would be like, long live the king. Let the king live forever. He's showing respect. He's showing honor to that position and authority like we're commanded in Romans 13. Give honor. Yeah, but do you know what's wrong? Give honor. Be respectful to those who are in positions of authority. Give honor. Be respectful. But that's not my political party. Yeah, you think Nehemiah, you think the king was his political party? He's a Jew. He's in a Persian palace. Use discernment. Use discernment. Nehemiah is diplomatic in his presentation. Did you catch that Nehemiah didn't mention Jerusalem by name? That the king lived forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, that would have been important to a middle, the, the ancient Near East. Oh, you know, honoring your ancestors. Nehemiah, your, your city, the place of your father's graves, it's in ruins. The gates of the city have been destroyed. Do you see what he's doing? He's, he's inviting the king to have compassion on him in his situation. He's not telling the king what a fool he is and what a failure he is and what you did wrong and blasting him. He's prayed for him. He cares about him. He's not a hypocrite. His face is fallen. He's sad in his presence, but the king is invited into caring about what's wrong with Nehemiah, my guy. Esther did the same thing. Think about this. She goes into the presence of the king. He dipped the scepter for her and said, what's your request? Do you remember what she responded with in Esther chapter five? If it please the king, come eat a banquet with me and bring your number one guy. Okay, dinner is on. And remember, they come to the dinner. Haman comes, and remember how he's bragging? Only I've been invited. I'm with the king. I'm the king's favorite guy. I'm the man. I'm going to dinner with the queen. You going to dinner with the queen? I'm going to dinner with the queen. Wow! <laughs> and they get there, and after the dinner, the king says, oh, that was so good. Uh, Esther, what was your request now? What does she say? If... It's not too much to ask. Could you come back tomorrow for another banquet? Sure. Amen. Tomorrow, buddy. Same time, same place. And Haman goes home. I am the man. And the providence of God is all over in between those accounts because that night the king can't sleep. The Lord won't let him sleep. And what does he do? Bring me the records, all right? Bring me the, you know, the records of the kingdom. So-and-so begot so-and-so, and this happened, and that happened. And the... Bring me the minutes from all the meetings. Read them. That'll put me to sleep. And he still can't sleep. And they get to the point where Mordecai found out about the plot against the king. And he says, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. What did we do to honor Mordecai for saving my life? Uh, your honor, your majesty, there's nothing written here. Huh. You know, we need, to do, we need to do something. And right then you hear coming in the palace, Haman, I'm the man. And remember how that unfolded? Haman comes in, the king says, Haman, what should I do for the man in, in whom I delight to honor? Oh, 
who would he want to honor more than me? I'm the guy. Well, here's what you should do. That one outfit you were wearing, that royal robe, oh, you put that on the person you want. Then get a royal beast, the one that you rode on through the city. Oh, put the person on that. And then find somebody in your kingdom, a really good, trustworthy, somebody you love and everybody knows is respectful and everybody, you know, is in command of that guy and let him go lead that person on the beast and shout, this is the man whom the king delights to honor. Yeah, do that, king. And you remember what Ahasuerus said? Mm, that is so good, Haman. Everything you said, every detail, go do that for Mordecai, the Jew. And Haman, record scratch moment. And he goes out that day and he's so angry and jealous and bitter. That's what bitterness does to you. It ruins you. It rots you from the inside out when you hate that other people are advanced and things are going well and they look better than you. They got a promotion over me and this and that. And it rots you from the inside out. That's Haman. And he's so angry and he parks the beast and he goes home. How was your day, Haman? What happened? <sighs> and right then, Haman, banquet time. And they yank him out and everybody's like, woo, his goose is cooked. That's a translation, paraphrase. They say, this guy's in, he, you're in trouble. And he goes and he's there at banquet second night. And they finish the banquet and the king says, Esther, you had something you wanted from me, what is it? And Esther does the same thing. My people. There's a plot to kill my people. And she invites Ahasuerus, her, the king, into compassion over who is trying to kill the people of my wife. Who would do such a thing? And remember, Haman, the Agagite, Haman. And the king is so filled with rage, he walks out on the balcony and Haman goes over and he's so close and he just gets, he just thinks I'm a man and I'll just impose my will on this woman, this Jew, I hate her. And he goes and he's all over her trying to plead for his life and the king walks back in. <gasps> Would you assault my wife in my own presence? And somebody says, you know, uh, king, Haman had some gallows outside his house made for the Jews. And the king says, you take him and his family and you put him on that. Fast forward. Nehemiah has paid attention to his history. Nehemiah, his eyes are on the Lord. And he knows that God is sovereign and that God is provident, but there's a delay that he gives on purpose. He doesn't just jump into Jerusalem. It's my people, the, the place of my father's graves. It's just, a, it's all ruined and destroyed. And then we see we need to address the problem. All right, so give honor. There's a need there. Use discernment, use wisdom, but we've got to get to the problem. What's the problem? We've got to deal with it. He has to be clear. He has to say what needs to be said. Oh, that we would be peacemakers. And to be peacemakers, we need to show honor to those we disagree with. We need to use discernment in what is the best way to deal with the conflict, but we must address the problem. We've got to say it. We've got to deal with it. God's good hand rules over our sadness, our fear, our needs, and fourthly, over our requests. All right, he's in there now. There's no turning back now. He said it. He said, my hometown's messed up, king. What do you think is the next question? Where's your hometown? What are we talking about here? God cares about what we need. He loves to have his children come to him in total dependence, and then he loves to provide. Here, Nehemiah is face to face with the man, remember that? 
He's just a man. And here he makes his request boldly. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Here we have a prayer to heaven. It's just, it's just one of those flares. Oh, Lord help. Right, have you ever prayed that one? Like you didn't have time. He didn't say, hang on a second, king, and go down, you know, over into the corner like they do before the boxing, you know, and get up, you know, and do the motions and say, okay, I'm ready now. He just had time for, oh, Lord, help me. Lord God of heaven, here we go. It's on. Here we go, Lord. I need your help. Peter prayed that one. I'm walking on the water. Lord, save me. Got you, Peter. And we are immediately at the boat. This is a prayer to heaven. He spent months fasting and praying. He's ready. He's waiting. He was researching. He was preparing. He wasn't just praying. He was saying, what's the condition like? What are we going to need? What's wrong? What are the materials? Where are they coming from? Who are the people that are possible conflict back there? Who are the people that have the materials that we need? He was ready. He's like, oh, did you say? Hang on. I'm ready. So he gives a plea to the human. A prayer goes to heaven. And he simply offers a plea to the human. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, would you love to just hear how that all unfolded? Like, like how long did he pause between, if it pleases the king, okay, he didn't cut me off yet. Uh, If your servant has found favor in your sight, okay, we're moving on. What do you want, Nehemiah? Nehemiah's request to engage in the work of God was met with acceptance. He's simply saying, I need your permission. The queen is sitting beside him. So somehow this is an intimate setting. This is where the queen is with me. This is a family dinner. This is something where the queen is in, in the court or at this dinner. It's in the, and here the king as has, has the queen looking on, I don't know what all that entails. What's her influence here? It's definitely her presence is there. So he asked the question, how long are you going to be gone? Oh, he didn't say no. He didn't say, are you kidding me? And when are you going to be home? I want you back. I'm not just getting rid of you. Fine. Go to your hometown, you loser. You're fired. He didn't say that. He said, how long are you going to be gone, Nehemiah? And when are you going to be back? When can I see you again? And Nehemiah says, well, this is going well. God's hand is at work here. Uh, Anything else? Well, you know, uh, uh, not just your permission, but king, can I also have your provision? King, can I have your credit card? Would you seriously ask a king that? Nehemiah did. He said, I don't want just your permission to go. What am I going to do? I actually need your help. I need you to pay for this trip. He didn't say no. He said, I need your letters. Uh, Since you mentioned it, can you please sign here and here and here and here and on the back, over here and over here and over here. Got it all arranged so that the governors of the province beyond the river will leave me alone. I'm on king, I'm on the king's business. I'm basically asking you, it says right here, king, don't mess with Nehemiah, he's on my business. Will you sign this? Sure. That went well. I'm also going to need some timber. Now, my grandfather loved that word, timber. Growing up in Montana, you know, Montana, timber, everywhere. I'm I'm like totally always zeroed in on wood, you know, wood everywhere, timber. I'm like, yes, I actually get a message and I get to preach about timber. He's like, we're going to need timber. What do you need that for? Well, we got to rebuild the gates. And the fortress of the temple, we got to rebuild that. 
He hasn't said no yet. We need to rebuild the wall of the city. Oh, and I'm going to need a place to live. I think that'll do it. God's good hand rules over our sadness, our fear, our needs, our requests, and lastly, over our blessings, loved ones. Nehemiah understands this wasn't because I'm the man. It wasn't because this king is just a great king. He said the king granted me what I asked. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. This is amazing. God is the one who provides everything good in our lives. The provision of the king, well, that was good. That was helpful. It was everything that Nehemiah prayed for, and everything that he asked for was granted. The way that seemed impossible was opened up. It was paid for. It wasn't just permission to go. He's like, sure, here it is. There you go. Now, I don't know if he, I don't know what he's, you know, like looking at the queen, like, oh yeah, I got that. What else do you need? Oh, I got that. What else do you need? Uh, I need a place to live. Sure, I'm the king after all. That's it. And do you know what even happens and we see it when we come to the next section? Hey, Nehemiah, aren't you probably going to need some armed guards to go with all this? I mean, I'm sending you with quite a bit here. Well, that'd be great, king. Yes, I'll take those. Thank you very much. My buddy Ezra, he was too afraid to ask for those in his day. He's like, oh, I told the king that the Lord would provide, and now I'm asking for an army. Well, that doesn't sound like much of faith, so let's fast and pray. And here, you carry this gold, and you carry the silver, and Lord, get us there. And the Lord got us there. Whew. Nehemiah's like, that'd be great, king. Arm guard, wonderful. We'll take them. Imagine Nehemiah walking out. You think his face is sad now? Imagine when the door closes behind him in that palace. What kind of dance was that? <laughs> I don't know if he was a good dancer or like me. You know, like, oh, don't record that. That is awful. Your back hurting? Yeah, I can tell. Stiff as a board. Back to the timber analogy, right? The providence of God. Think about it. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. That's what Nehemiah has seen. The king provides and above what he even asks for. Oh, we see the provision of the king. We see the providence of God. And that's what he says. How did all this happen? The good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah is led into praise and worship, and he's inviting everyone, join me in worshiping this God. God did this. The words from Proverbs 16, 9 were probably just flowing through him. Maybe he prayed this before, Lord, I know that the heart of a man plans his ways, but Lord, if this is going to happen, you have to establish my steps. Proverbs 21.1, Lord, I know I've read it in your word. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. So Lord, I'm asking you to take Artaxerxes' heart and I'm asking you to move it wherever you want it to go. And I believe it's right and fitting for your glory to be restored in the city that you've chosen, that there will come a Messiah through that city, Lord. And I'm asking you to honor your word, God. And then he's in the presence of the king and the king's sure, sure, of course, Sign, good, and here's your military protection. What? His thankfulness is a right response. God has been so good to me. Now think about this. This shows up in the Bible. This, this God will provide. Do you remember where? Genesis 22, 7, Abraham, the son I've given to you, go up onto a mountain that I will show you and offer him to me, your chosen son, not the son that you got by sideways disobedience, lack of trust, the son I gave to you, the son of promise. And Abraham takes Isaac and they take that, the wood and they take the fire and they go with the servants up the mountain. And he says, hey, wait here, the boy and I are going to worship and we're going to come back. And then they're going up, and Isaac gets curious, like, like boys do. And he says, Dad, uh, we got the wood, we have the fire. Where is the sacrifice, Dad? 
And Genesis 22, 7, here it is, the Lord. This is what Abraham says. My son, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb. And where did that happen? Oh, it happened on that mountain. And Isaac's life was spared. But on another mountain, years later, generations later, the Son of God was not spared so that you and I could be forgiven. No stay of the hand that Jesus laid down his life. Why? Because of that promise all the way fast forward, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. And all God's people said, amen. The Lord will provide. He's provident. John Flavel, he says this. Now think about this. This is the anchor into this when trials come. Providence is wiser than you, and you may be confident it has suited all things better to your eternal good than you could do had you been left to your own option. God's providence in your life is better for you and for me than us calling all the shots. And we know that, but we need to know that. And how do we experience that? Trials, suffering, testing. God's good hand rules over our sadness, our fear, our needs, our requests, and our blessings. Are you thankful for that? We were just talking this week, Ginger and I were, and, and we were talking with someone in God's providence. And we were just reminded of when we, before we came here, she was working, I was working, trying to make ends meet. And the providence of God would show up in so many ways. We were just recounting that, that somebody, we went to church that we were, you know, a church we were going to, and we knew this man, didn't know him well. And he says, come on, let's go to eat. Bring your family out. And we went to Olive Garden down in Warren. And he paid for our meal. And I was like, man, I love to, <laughs> we got to eat. This is amazing. <laughs> and he picked up the tab. Yes. And then we got up from the table and he was putting his coat on and he reached in his coat. Pulled out an envelope. He said, here. God laid it on my heart to put this in my, he, he, that somebody would need this today. And $500 was in that envelope. We left a very, very low point in our life. Reminded, God is faithful and he provides in so many ways. I reached back to that man to thank him. It's as if he just forgot it. It's as if he just, why? Because he wasn't doing it for a thank you. He was doing it out of a reverence and worship and a response and an obedience and all oh, how he ministered far beyond $500 to our souls. So here's two questions. What are the real ways that Nehemiah demonstrated dependence upon the Lord? Think about that. We need this. And what problem or situation in your life do you need to see God's good hand at work in your life? Can we trust in loved ones? Yes, we can. Let's stand together. Thank you, Aaron. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good. And so we, we want to trust in you, Lord, with all our hearts. I pray for the one who's never come by faith and trusted in Christ alone for their salvation today, that today they will respond and trust repentance and faith, that we would trust in the Lord with all our hearts. Help us, Lord, to not lean on our own understanding, 
when times are good, when times are bad. Help us to not lean on our own understanding, Lord, but in all our ways, all our ways, every last activity, every last thought, every last action and attitude, Father, help us to acknowledge you to put you first, Lord. Forgive us all we need to repent of putting other things and even people and relationships before you. And when we, like Nehemiah, put our trust in you and respond in humble obedience from a righteous, purified heart, we will see the promise come true that you will make straight our paths. You will make a way where there seems to be no way. And we will stand in humble awe and reverence in worship to the lamb who was slain for sinners, knowing that God, you are the God who provides. In Jesus' great and powerful name we pray. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.